And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 78 of the Keith Law Show, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. I am your host, Keith Law. I will be joined today by Trevor Strunk, known to maybe some of you as Hegelbahn on Twitter. He has a book coming out called Story Mode, about the intersection of culture and video games. It will be out on November 15th, and I talked to him at some length about that book and some of the ideas that he approaches in it. It is a more academic look at video games than I think I'd encountered before and as somebody who's played video games but generally keep myself from playing them too much because I know how much time they will consume, I really enjoyed it. I do have a couple of new posts up for subscribers to The Athletic since the last time I spoke to you all. Two dispatches from the Arizona Fall League. I was out there for four days last week. I saw all or part of seven Fall League games as well as two Instructional League games and I have a lot of notes most of which we didn't made it into those two posts. First one covered especially Mackenzie Gore and Zach Thompson, two very highly touted former first-round picks who had disappointing years in 2021 but looked very good in the fall league. And then a second longer post where I talked about some of the Major League Baseball experimental rule changes that we saw in the fall league, most of which did not work particularly well, as well as notes on a whole slew of additional players whom I saw out in the desert. Also, I would like to remind everyone that I do have two books out. As you prepare your holiday shopping, please keep in mind that the inside game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, and Smart Baseball are both available in paperback, and you can get them anywhere fine books are sold. Check out an independent bookstore near you, and if you don't have one, I am sorry to hear that, but check out bookshop.org, which is a way to support independent bookstores, keep them open, even if you don't have a specific one in your neighborhood. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by uh, Trevor Strunk. You may know him from Twitter, where he is at Hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N, uh, he is the host of the podcast No Cartridge, and he has a new book coming out on November 15th. It is called Story Mode, Video Games and the Interplay Between Consoles and Culture. It is coming out from Prometheus Books. You can pre-order it pretty much anywhere you buy books, on Bookshop, on the giant online retailer who shall not be named. Um, but I've read it, and I strongly recommend you check it out, especially if you are into video games. Uh, Trevor, or should I call you Dr. Strunk? You are actually a doctor person. Please call me. Please call me Trevor. The only person who calls me Dr. Strunk is uh, my co-host on the podcast, The Dirty Ending, which is our baseball podcast. Uh, yes. uh, uh, Justin calls is me that. Justin? I think it's, yes. yeah, yeah. I think it's just to bother me. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, uh, yeah, I try I try very hard at, uh, as the, uh, the, the venerable John, Jonathan Maynard uh, said when I was at uh, NYU with him. Uh, he said he never calls himself a doctor because one time he uh, 
he was at the bottom of his building and someone was sick and someone said, is there a doctor here? And they said, well, John Maynard is a doctor. It's on his mailbox. And he said, nice. no, I'm not the good kind. Of, I'm not, not useful. That kind of I, I can't yes. help. Yeah. So I, I live in fear of that moment. Yes. My wife is also a, she has a PhD and uh, like you as a professor and her, I mean, it's, it, she says it almost reflexively, not that kind of doctor. Yeah, are, exactly. Are you a, no, no, you got nothing. to. Yes. Got to explain to the kids, especially. Kids are like, but mommy, <laughs> you're a doctor. Not that kind of doctor. Can't prescribe anything to you, kid. No, unfortunately. So, Except bedtimes. Uh, yes. Yes. When we uh, when we can, we do. Uh, so I want to start actually something you said in the conclusion of the book that I think um, is a good introduction to what this book is. This book is, okay. is uh, you know, in my reading – it's a pretty academic look at video games and their import and relationship to the culture. And you specifically sure. cite um, something you weren't even sure. You said you said you weren't sure if this would really hold true until you had gotten a good bit of the way through writing the book. You refer to a dialectic relationship between video game audiences and developers. Mm-hmm. Why don't you explain what that means, especially a lot of folks may not be familiar with what a dialectic relationship is. And what did you yeah. find through the research and writing of the book? So, um, yeah, no, this is interesting because, like, one of the challenges in writing the book is definitely marrying the the academic tone that I learned through getting my PhD with, like, uh, a very sort of, like, receptive um, and, and, I mean, for lack of a better word, normal way of talking that I've, that I've learned from not being in a PhD program. Like, you sort of get deprogrammed after a while. You stop talking to people about, like, you know, the latest theory or, like, you know, what it means for the society of the spectacle or something like that, right? Um I haven't asked anyone about Italian theory in years. It's like, it's, I have to wear a little band about it. Um, it's the 12th step. Uh, but yeah, no, it's like, you know, the, that was a challenge in the book. Cause I didn't want to, I wanted to make it accessible to everyone. And I hope I did, but like, um, there are moments in there that I have to kind of bring in these ideas that are, that are best described through these complex, uh, complex terms like dialectics. And so like dialectic, it ultimately, you know, it gets a lot of play because it, it has this sort of Marxist Hegelian, thing going on with it right but um you know one of the one of the funny things about it is it's been this kind of way of thinking about opposites since the time of plato so it's as old as you know the ancient greeks probably older and the dialectic simply just uh, refers to this idea that two things can be opposite one another and look completely at at odds right and in this case like in, in much the same way that we might think about um uh, dialectics in baseball right like pitcher hitter um like uh, in this case, you sort of think about it in terms of, um, uh, uh, you know, player and creator, right? One person's giving you the thing to play. One person's playing it. They seem to be completely opposed. Um, and if you look at it long enough, and you think about it long enough. In fact, those opposites resolve into sort of a third thing, uh, a relationship, right? Dialectics are a core kind of relationship. So, um, you know, I actually didn't understand baseball. And I feel like such, I feel always feel like such a poser, but I've always been a four for four guy. Like, you know, any Philadelphia people listening, don't worry. I didn't jump on the bandwagon. I've <laughs> always been this miserable. Um, you know, I, I, I started really being able to follow the Phillies and like understand baseball as a sport in 2008 and, and during the world series run. And one of the reasons that I was able to sort of like watch the games instead of just saying like, Oh yeah, I'm a Phillies fan and just kind of know the players or whatever um, was because I recognized that the, the relationship between the hitter and the pitcher was this its own thing, right? Like they weren't actually opposites like that, that sort of like uh, that kind of relationship was at the core of the game at the sort of center point of, of, of the experience and understanding that as sort of like its own central third thing, as opposed to like, will the hitter win or will the pitcher win was totally, you know, transformative. Um, it's the same thing in the book, right? 
because like looking at the history of games so the book looks at these longer series mm-hmm. um you know your metal gears your final fantasies uh there's chapters on those there's chapters on genres as well i sort of i i kind of couldn't decide so, so I you did have both. like six you know for folks who haven't obviously most folks haven't seen the book but there are six major chapters each of which covers mm-hmm. either a specific subgenre or a particular series of games Right, yeah, and, and you know there were a lump, there were a lot that got kind of nixed on on the uh, on the chopping block when I was uh, you know con- conceiving the book. I'm sure you know you've written your share. You know how that goes. Yep. Um, but like you know these these six seem to really kind of encapsulate this dynamic that I recognized at the beginning, which is that over time games change, right? Mm. We, 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 we imagine a, a sort of like series, and we think like, oh, that's that's like a. a, a a monolith, right? You think like, Final Fantasy is the perfect example because it's so big. Uh, 1985 to present, like you're thinking like that's as old as me. Yeah, I had actually a hard time like, wait, that game is that old? Yeah, it's like, it's right? it's messed up. Yeah, yeah, it's like. I was just going to say like that, that it is funny to me to think of games 85, I was 12. Right? Okay. To think that anything from that era survived till now. It right. Basically, continuously, right? I mean, you may you know the timeline better than I do, but the Final Fantasy series, what are they on? Fifteen or sixteen games? Uh, in sixteen's the coming out. Sixteen's yeah. coming out. Okay, and I know the number. But then there's all sub games and stuff, right. tactics, and yeah, X twos and thirteen threes, and yeah, no, it's it's wild, and like you, you kind of hit at something that I find like I think was an animating force for me in this book, which is like thinking about that as a continuous thing. Is that actually accurate? Is it like actually right. this continuity or is it like sort of a, a you think about it like the um, there's a lot of this, this happens a lot outside of America where you think about um, uh, works like um, uh, Phantomas in, uh, in 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 or Danger Diabolique, the, the Italian comic or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Papa Coffin, the Brazilian horror icon, has come up because Elijah Wood purchased the the rights to it. Mm-hmm. Like these things are 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 these kind of um, I don't know, like anthologies almost, where like you know inspiration can can hit someone, picks something up, someone takes something, someone elaborates upon it, and it's not quite a continuity. It's it's a it's a sort of um, elaboration on a theme, sort of like a. a, a I don't know what you'd say, like almost, almost improv, right? Like almost improvisation, almost uh, taking something and, and, and fitting it to the situation it needs to be in. And so the question becomes like, is it Final Fantasy or is it that, right? Like, do we have a monolith or don't we? Um, and what I was surprised to find where this dialectic comes in is like, it's not totally clear that we don't, and it's not cl- totally clear that we do. I was expecting when I started this book to be reading these games and seeing like, okay, every game over time starts with this wild kind of premise and then slowly becomes more conservative, whether or not that's politically or within its scope or whatever, like it, it, it becomes lesser because like um, that's typically what happens in the marketplace. We, Mm -hmm. um, we have these, uh, these massive ideas that we find out, you know, okay, they're marketable in this way. We'll market them in this way. And they become smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, like take, you know, the fast and the furious movies are a good example of this, where you have like these wild sort of like chase romance heist, et cetera. And they're still that right. But like, they've realized like, okay, we, people love the heist stuff. People love the characters. People love the action scene. So we'll do heist action scene, character movies. We're not going like, to take out the romance, take out the, it doesn't matter. Um, and you know that's just what happens. It's it's not a it's it's not even a condemnation. It's just it's the world we live in. But what I found out was while doing the book was like looking at reviews and looking at things that like people saw and didn't see in these games. There is this weird interplay between the people who play these games 
and the the creators themselves, wherein the creators will often, you know, acquiesce to uh, to players when they see like critique. They'll they'll try and make their game more more palatable to their players, as opposed mm-hmm. to sort of like, you know, carrying on as we might expect with right auteurs or something like that. Right? It's not like it's not like directors where they're like you know Martin Scorsese will say like, well, this one was for me, that one's for you. Mm-hmm. This is like way different. Where you know you see like someone like Hideo Kojima in, in moving from Metal Gear Solid 2 to Metal Gear Solid 3. In Metal Gear Solid 2, people hated his protagonist. All of a sudden, like his his whole thematic was relying on this protagonist. Mm-hmm. People hated the protagonist. And he and said, why, okay, we're back. What, so what did they hate about the protagonist specifically? So, yeah. So in Metal Gear Solid, you play as... Um, as as solid snake this this sort of like rugged uh, uh mercenary um and through the first you know four metal gear games metal gear uh metal gear well i guess three so it's metal gear and then metal gear solid snake and then uh metal gear solid um the first two uh, available on like the msx and the nes and the the playstation one being the big one that's gotcha. the you know metal gear solid's the first one that like really hits um and these games are all about how within like war and and the military industrial complex you can't have um heroes like everyone mm-hmm. becomes um you know uh, de-individualized it's these larger global conflicts that in and of themselves are are you know he uses nuclear war very heavily kojima does um the the, the hideo kojima the writer and sort of like yeah, auteur is a tough one in video games since there's so <laughs> many people that have to do it but for lack of a better word uh director let's say yeah um he relies a lot on nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war, the sort of like specter of it. Um, and that, that de-individualizes uh, your, your hero. You basically play a game as the, as the, uh, as a sort of Kurt Russell esque, like escape from New York style hero that is in the end revealed to just kind of be a cog in the machine. Right. Like he says it himself. He says like, I'm not a hero. There's no such thing as a hero. I'm just going to like go retire. Um, and in the second game, the amazing thing about the second game is that Kojima kind of goes through with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Snake Snake shows up in the beginning. He's like kind of, you know, doing a version of his old thing. He's, he's trying to be like an NGO or something. And he disappears. We're, we're told he dies. And we're given for the second half of the game, this new character named Raiden, who is like this, this like ninja kind of guy very femme very like unsure of himself he's like in the same program as snake but like doesn't know what he's doing there and like it is this amazing move honestly where the player is basically told like okay you heard the theme of the first game now you have to live the theme of the first game right and it's basically saying like everyone's replaceable everyone's anonymous now you get this guy right (laughs) i can't imagine why this wouldn't go over well I know. Well, it, it went over terribly, like a, like a like a ton <laughs> of bricks, right? It was like this absolute correct thing to do um, thematically, right? Like it's totally how you tell the story. It's how if you were writing a novel, you would tell the story. The next guy is like, is, you know, next guy up essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, fans hated it. We're super furious about it. Um, in the next game, we get Snake from the past, right? Kojima totally does a, a three like a one eighty, and now we're back with like a former solid snake, right? And we we get we get snake in the past, rugged snake. They even do like a a kind of joke where he's wearing the mask that Raiden wears at the beginning of Metal Gear Solid Two, <laughs> and then he pulls it off and he says like "kept you waiting," like this is the classic line. And then for the rest of the games, it's snake. It's always snake, right? Raiden comes back for a, for an action game that is beloved, but like ultimately not super important to the plot. He's like. Uh, He's not treated very well in the series. Um, and, uh, you know, while that's thematically appropriate, uh, Snake is centralized again. And so, like, this is this weird thing, right, where we have an auteur who is 
beloved and known as this guy who is constantly um, messing with his fans' expectations and stuff like that, completely kowtow into the fans in, in, a, in a very real way. Um, and then the the structure of the story falling apart as a result, or, or not falling apart, but like taking a hit, taking a hit in terms of thematics and credibility, still an interesting piece, but not groundbreaking. Um, but what I was fascinated to find was that this didn't always happen, right? Like in the case of horror games, I was surprised that, you know, post 9-11, 9-11 is a cut in a lot of these game genres um, and a lot of things in general. Mm-hmm. But post 9-11, that horror games pivot to sort of be about like horror games before 9-11 are about being overrun. They're zombie fantasies, right? Like it's, right. it's the fear of being uh, alone with a group of evil people. Um, and then after 9-11, it's this fear of disconnection, right? It's this fear of like, oh my God, like, am I alone in the world completely? Mm-hmm. And like that sort of thematic shift, the fact that like these creators are able to understand that this is the way it's going and audiences are also able to relate to that. Like it's not, I think this is some, I don't know if I ever actually say this in the book, but I hope the book bears this out thematically is that like, there's not like an easy um one-to-one relationship between like, oh, these fans don't get it or these creators don't get it or like these greedy corporations are messing up all the games or whatever. Right. <laughs> it really is this like, it's this ultra individualized like relationship every single time. And um, I, I don't know, like I think what it tells us about the about the, the future of gaming is like it's, it is that it's going to be like a very complicated sort of uh, dance between people who like games and people who make games. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You mentioned a couple points in there too. You talk talking about not just the main character in Kojima's games there, but just characterization. And that's something I noticed that comes through kind of across the entire discussion in the book too. So much of what you're talking about, you talk a lot about story, obviously, mm-hmm. but also about Naturally. character. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. yes, I would hope you talk about story. Otherwise, the title would be just a giant lie, I guess. Character mode just didn't have the, the juice. No, that it's not a thing, it. right? I feel like that's no. not as much of <laughs> But character is really important. It is incredibly important, particularly since Mm -hmm. you're talking about most of these, some of these have multiplayer modes, but you're talking about all of these kind of a single player games in that when people don't connect with a character, it seems like the game is not as successful. It's either not as commercially successful or not as critically successful. And you're very careful to distinguish between the two throughout, Mm -hmm. which to me is very much, I don't have a lot of experience with um, role-playing games, but to me that's sort of the best um, 
the strongest comparison that I can offer is somebody who played more video games when I was younger than had to stop because of the amount of time that would go into them. Like, you know, I got to tell you, there's a lot there. They take up a lot of time. They take up a lot of time. I mean, I mentioned to you when we were first talking about setting this up about I love Baldur's Gate. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I I easily spent probably 200 hours that might even be conservative playing through that whole trilogy multiple times. It was Oh, so you have played Baldur's Gate 3. I've played. So you haven't given no, it so up I've, completely. Not okay. the current one. I've played one, two, and then thrown a ball, which was technically oh, expansion, yes. but people generally no. But that's think a major it. expansion. It's a, right. it's too a little too big, I think, to call it a standalone. <laughs> um, sorry to call it just an expansion. I think it's more of a standalone game. But one of the things that worked so well in that was that um, that whole series for me was. The story was very strong, but you also had a pretty clearly defined main character that you could help define as you go. They created mm-hmm. a story that would also morph around how you chose to use the character. Absolutely. So anyway, this has turned into a very long question, which was not my intention. But um, you know, talk to me a little bit more about this, the in, how you see that interplay between you – know, you've talked about the dialectic in terms of story, but also how about in terms of – character across all yeah. different genres you look at multiple genres here but that seems to be a consistent um a consistent pattern yeah totally i mean like the you know you're right to say that it shows up maybe most strongly in role-playing games like this was something another thing like so i say i'm surprised a lot in what i find and and, and that makes it sound like i had no idea what i was doing right, right. Um, <laughs> which if you if, if anyone listening hasn't written a book that will be a very common thing if you ever do write one that you feel like you don't know what you're doing oh absolutely um, it's part yeah, of the process it's, it's shocking how, how you're just like oh yeah this is a this is a nightmare um or it's a great day and it's the best thing you've ever done but the um you know, one thing that did surprise me while I was reading old reviews of these games, old sort of like author statements on these games and, and ideas that people had was just the the massive debt that early role-playing games had to Dungeons and Dragons. Like, I assume yes. they had some kind of debt, right? Like, I'm not unaware of it. But like, just how much the difference between a game like Final Fantasy 1 and even like Final Fantasy, you know, in America, it would be 3, but in... Japan would be six. The difference between those two in terms of like, okay, Final Fantasy one, you're doing a a D&D campaign. You Mm -hmm. can say any, you know, these characters can be, you know, more or less like the story is plotted out for you, but it's like one of those ones on the back of the, the, um, the, the old uh, monster manuals or whatever, where you could like have like a, a preset game. Right. Um, We're going to play like, I, I can't think of any of the, but like, you know, Icewind Dale or whatever, like these are all sort of like versions of this, right? Um, And I think like what's fascinating about one in Final Fantasy one is that it really does depersonalize all the characters so you can project onto them, right? Like, you you know, it's it's fighter, mage, white, fighter, black mage, white mage, and uh, thief, red mage. I can't remember. Yep. But um, yeah. And so like, that's just what you project onto. Like uh, uh, my fighter is doing this or my thief is doing that. You you provide the background in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. They are warriors of light and you provide the background. Um, by six, they're characters. They're fleshed out characters. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about Rydia. You're talking about, um, you're talking, I mean, there's a million. I'm not going to go through all the yeah, right. <laughs> It's like war and there's peace. there's a lot, right? Yeah, you're, I mean, yeah, right. It's no, about Russia. Yeah, yeah it, I, I mean, essentially, yeah. Kafka's in there. It's just one there step away from Kafka. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like it's, it is this amazing debt that they have to D and D at the beginning, but also the fact that D and D is its own thing. And when you're doing a video game, there is this need to kind of balance 
you know, okay, we want the players to feel like they're part of the story. We also want the players to feel like they're reading a story, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like the characters have to be these fleshed out. It, it, I'm constantly reminded when I think about video games of that scene um, from The Simpsons where uh, Bart and Lisa are taken into a uh, focus group for Itchy and Scratchy. Mm -hmm. And they ask, you know, okay, well, how many of you want to see Itchy and Scratchy do real life down to earth things? And everyone raises their hand and says, that'd be great. And they say, okay, how many of you want the exact opposite? Itchy and Scratchy in space and like fighting zombies and stuff. And everyone says, oh, that'd be great. Yeah. And, you know, both respond. Um and like, it, it really is like that in games too, where it's like they, you want to have something where you feel like you are involved and you are, you know, creating the character, but you also want a story, mm -hmm. right? You want something that feels like it's made for you. And so that element of games is something that I feel really contributes to its medium specificity. And, and by medium specificity, I mean, like, what does it mean when you're making a game as opposed to writing a novel? Right. Like if someone tells you I'm making a video game and someone tells you I'm writing a novel, you expect two different things. And so what is the what is the distinction between those things? Well, one of them is that a novel doesn't have to make you feel like you're the character in it. It can. I mean, there are experimental novels out there, but sure. by and large, the genre doesn't care. Like it, it's giving you a story. You are passively taking in the story. You might be interpreting it or guessing people's motives or something like that. You're, you know, wondering how reliable a narrator Nick Carraway is or whatever in The Great Gatsby. Mm -hmm. But in a game, you're not just doing that, you're also interacting. So that interactive element means that people want to be part of the story as well as having a story in front of them. And I think by like, you know, 1993, 1994, this has become a whole can of worms. Like you can no longer produce a game like Final Fantasy where it, or Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest One, where like it literally is like, hey, welcome to this adventure, nameless warrior. Like, please save the princess. You, you can't do that anymore. You have to have both that feeling and also the sense of like a capacious, enjoyable story. Um, yeah. No, I'm glad you brought up the, the Great Gatsby and just the comparison to oh, novel. You're glad you, I brought you, it through. That's the I first am. time I've heard that. Very much so. No. Although I'm more of a tender as the night guy, but still Great Gatsby is oh, pretty, okay. pretty great. All right. All right. Yeah. Really anything Fitzgerald wrote is good by me. <laughs> but you brought, you drop little references throughout your book, Story Mode, to, to novels. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Which to me, this is something I've struggled with a bit. And as somebody who generally likes video games, the main reason I don't play video games, like I said, is time. It is not any kind of disdain for the genre at all. They're massive time sinks, yeah. I think I'd probably love video games. Um, and I just barely play them. In fact, I bought one uh, last off-season thinking, I'll have a little time to play this and still haven't. I'm going to at some point, I swear. But it's still sitting there in Steam. Um, taunting me every time Steam oh, boots I, up. Yes, I know this feeling. Yeah. I'm sure you yeah. do. I have like I have a whole shelf downstairs of unplayed board games. It's the same kind of thing. They also taunt me. I'm taunted <laughs> quite a bit. In my, and I have three children. <laughs> I was going to say you just have taunt kids. me, right? Basically, every kids day. just taunt you all the time. It, yeah. it's, it just comes naturally to them. Mm -hmm. um, but that this idea, can you approach? This is a loaded question when I ask it anyway. I think of the, the novel as kind of, at least in Western culture, it's the, you know, I, I don't mean to be too sort of Western centric, but you know, it's where I grew up, right? That is our primary mode of rich, complex storytelling. Mm -hmm. Can you, to what extent do you think video game writing, it's never going to match that necessarily, but is that even the goal? Am I, if I look at a video game and say, it's never going to be as good as a novel or a really good movie, Am I kind of missing the point when I think that way? I mean, uh, yes and no. Like, I think you're right to question it, right? Like, you're right to say, and I, I you know, I, I have, I have come to the conclusion as well that, like, 
you know, video games, especially like mainstream video games may never probably will never be like, you know, novel level good. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't be like tucking into a video game and hoping for like, you know, oh, I can't wait for this Tolstoy to, to unfold before my eyes. And there's many reasons for that. And part of the, part of the point of this book in, in, in my own mind is to kind of ask what are those reasons and, and come up with the reasons that like, okay, why do we not need the video game necessarily to be as like good as, as a novel when it, when it comes to narrative, when it comes to writing, whatever. Um, and so one of the things that's really interesting about the question, right? Like why, why isn't this video game more like a novel or a film is that, you know, when you look back and this is something I did in the intro um, much to the uh, uh, terror of my agent and editor, but I think I pulled it off um, was I, I introduced the book by talking about the history of the novel, which like, you know, if you want to throw people off, uh, start your video game book with the history of the novel. Um, <laughs> but the history of the novel is fascinating. I enjoyed I it think... personally. Oh, I'm glad. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled. That's right. Thank, I mean, that's, thank you. That was right into my veins there. Oh, wonderful. I love Excellent. that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, the history of the novel is fascinating. And I think like it's tough because it's, you know, it's a hard sell because uh, you're like, OK, read this Michael McKeon book. Like, you know, just it's, you know, 1100 pages long. You'll be fine. Or, you know, you can you can give someone like it's or Peter Watt. It's just like it's extremely Marxist. Don't worry. Well, just um, for, for folks who don't know this, too, like there's really a you know, an unending academic debate over what oh, actually yeah. qualifies as the first novel. Is it, it's you mentioned Tristram Shandy, you mentioned, um, which I read, I would have to say, I didn't entirely understand the language, the prose oh, that I was brilliant. going through. It's great. Um, Clarissa, which I haven't mm -hmm. read, uh, because it's like, right? Isn't it like 15 pages? <laughs> it's also just pages? letters. I mean, it's, it's just it's, letters. It's just letters. People, well, is that assure a, me. <laughs> the epistolary novel. But That's then there's correct. also Daniel Burt, the literary literature performer, literature professor at NYU. I don't think he still is, but you know, he argues it might be Tale of Genji, which is Japanese novel yep. with a lot of you poetry interspersed through it throughout it, which predates these other books by five hundred years. There's so, Don Quixote too, which also there's predates Don Quixote, them, but doesn't yep. predate Tale of Genji. Yeah, it's this fascinating problem. And it's totally a problem of, of medium, right? And, and and we see this problem. It's it's hard to conceptualize with the novel because it happened so long ago. But when the novel came out, people were like, okay, what is this weird thing? Like if you read, I, I think like the one that does it most obviously is um, Tom Jones by Henry Fielding, which no one reads, but it, it's it's enjoyable. I read oh, it. you've read it? I oh, liked wow. it. Wow. It's very yeah, funny. No, it's a great book. Yeah, uh, you just have to it, work. It's, it's a little long. And like a lot of those older English books, like the people just don't talk like that anymore. But they do, they do play a lot on, on the word muff and what that can mean. Oh, that book is, wraps yeah. It's yeah, filthy. That, yeah. That book is dirty. Yes. Yeah. It's a dirty it's, book. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Small, well, so what or, is, it's a, uh, it feels like a Monty Python sketch. Well, what do you have? Yes. Dirty books. Yes. There you but it's like, it absolutely is like, that's something that people were obsessed about when novels came out is that they seem dirty. Are yes. they morally right? Are they morally wrong? And so like a lot of times this is written off as a puritanical issue. And in some ways it is, but in other ways, it's like, it's much more an issue about edification and mm -hmm. like, what does it teach you? Right? Like when you get to America and you're looking at sentimental fiction in America, uh, yeah, totally puritanical thing. Those books are all about teaching you a lesson um, and, and being against, you know, scandalous books. There are, there are like, for about 25 years in America, a bunch of novels, literally no one reads, um, were, were put out that are just like stories about what happens if you have sex outside of, uh, you know, before marriage and what happens is you die, right? Like, you, I, 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 you know, this tale, you know, hopefully our, our daughters will read this. Yeah. Now those are slasher movie plots. Yeah, right. Exactly. And they're much more fun. Um, but the, you know, the, the, those were written in response to this idea of the novel 
being this corrupting force. And in England, the, the concern about the novel's corrupting force comes down to like, does it teach us things like poetry does? Does it teach us things like, like Homeric sagas do, right? Like these teach us, you know, how to be human or, or how to, how to, you know, speak in terms of like, uh, hero, you know, uh, yeah, heroism, it teaches us about heroism, it teaches us about honor. You know, people were obsessed with stuff like this, right? They can be satirical, they can be political. Uh, poems were all the rage. Like that, that is like, that is where it's at, right? Um, and then the novel comes along. And so like, Fielding, when writing Tom Jones, every time he starts a, a series of chapters, he's like, welcome to my like prosaic prose comedy, epic heroism, <laughs> novel simulation. Like right. it, he, he has no idea what to call it. Mm -hmm. And this is something that freaks people out. They're like, well, these are just like trashy, right? Like you're just, you're, you're doing bad poetry. Same thing happens with <laughs> like, absolutely. Like same thing mm -hmm. happens with, with photography, right? Photography comes out. People are like, this is just bad paintings. Like what you're right. doing is you're just like, you're just creating like a snapshot. This can never be art. And now, you know, a hundred years course. later, we're, we were just like, this is totally art. Absolutely. Film comes out. Oh, what you're doing is you're just like, this is, this is vulgar. Um, this is just a representation of the world that is not actually a representation of the world. Like, you know, it, it'll never have thematic, it'll never have thematic uh, merit. It'll never actually have artistic merit. It's just a, a way of documenting 10 years down the line. That's like being challenged. And so like, this is something that commonly happens. Like we see it happening with TV um, right now when like the idea of prestige TV initially pushed up against the idea of, you know, TV's all sort of like disposable garbage. And now it's again, pressing up against the idea of like, well, okay, is prestige TV its own kind of garbage? Like all of these growing pains are part of a medium finding its place in the world. And, you know, we understand the novel as like the sine qua non of like, uh, artistic expression because it's had a lot of time to get itself right. Right. <laughs> um, and video games really haven't. Like if you look at like the history of video games, it's really been like 1970s to now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while maybe photography and film have, have made more gains, um, I feel like as a, a kind of like immersive thing, you know, video games have had a much more, uh, somewhat of a more difficult path in defining themselves because the technology keeps changing, the expectations keep changing, the ideas keep changing. And now that we're at sort of uh, a point where like, okay, the differences between the last generation and this one aren't so different. The ideas from the last generation to this one aren't like radically different in terms of like what we're trying to accomplish. There is this consolidation, right? Where we're sort of asking ourselves like, what are these things supposed to do? Like, can they provide a good, like a, a, a transformative artistic experience. Um, are we just supposed to enjoy them as uh, disposable material? Like, you know, you, we, people viewed the novel or is there something else there? And I think that question that you began with, so you asked a long question, I gave a long answer. So That's sorry okay. about that. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that question you asked, like they don't, you know, should we ever like expect them to be as good as novels? I think that's like at the central point, right? Like if we don't, then what are they doing as a medium and how do we understand that? Because even if like, we have to agree that they're like, ultimately if someone says like, you know, Matt Chrisman of, of Chapo Trap House famously made this this uh, debate with me, like, and and has stood by it as, you know, for years at this point, that games are just like garbage, you know, like it's, it is, it is just like, uh, it, it's, it's power fantasies and, and stuff like that. And it, there's, there's an argument there. Like I, you know, mm -hmm. I disagree with him, but he's made an argument and it's like, it's clear. If we even determine that that's true, if we have to admit that that's true, 
we can't deny that they're actually like a substantive medium in the world, right? And so like having to understand what they are is something that we have to do from an aesthetic and a, a sort of like socio-historical perspective. Um, and I think that's part of what, you know, the import of your question is, but more so like the import of actually taking that question seriously, as opposed to like in the video game press being extremely defensive about it, or in the mainstream press, just saying like, well, it's just like, it's, it's trash to, to keep kids pacified for a couple hours. Last question I wanted to ask you is there, mm -hmm. you quote, um, I think Frederick Jameson was the person you were quoting. You said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, which to me it's is sort classic. of, it's a great quote. And it also, I mean, boy, does it really apply to not just video games, a little bits tabletop, especially to the science fiction, mm -hmm. um, where so much of that literature is set in something that is post-apocalyptic. Whether it's outright so, like you know, Canticle for Leibowitz, or or the whole fifth season uh, trilogy, mm -hmm. or it is just, hey, something's kind of gone wrong on Earth, <laughs> and then yeah. we're dealing with that sort of aftermath. And so much of what you talk about, I mean, a huge portion of the games you talk about in the book, including like Fallout, which is a straight up, yep. you know, the original straight RPG, um, just said in you know, to me that was very uh, reminds me of Wasteland, which was the. Um, yes. God, what was that late 80s or so? It was basically Baldur's, not Baldur's Gate, Bard's Tale, but set in a post-nuclear. Yeah. And and actually, I think they're doing new Wasteland games now, too. Are so they like, really? Yeah. All the Everything old is new again. again yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious your thoughts on kind of what, why. Why do we see so much, of, so many of the great video games seem to mm -hmm. be set in this post-apocalyptic setting, where, by the way... Um, and this is true in fantasy too. They all do seem to have basically market economies too. If you think the whole <laughs> yeah. D and D world for all this fantasy stuff, it's a pretty straight up market economy. Uh, you know, it, it's part of the reason. If you if you if you held me down and asked, I'd say that I prefer Shadowrun to D and D. Is that like hmm. Shadowrun is a, like hyper capitalist? It's like, hey, look, like everything costs creds here, and it doesn't matter if you're doing legal stuff or legal stuff. Just don't get caught. It's like everyone's earning money constantly. And it's this, it's a much more realistic version of the vision of the future than one that's like, ah, welcome brave adventurer. We, we no longer have money here. But You're in a tavern. Yeah. Do you, do you have any caps for us? Like that, yes, I mean, that, right. that, that's like, that's fall. <laughs> like it's just caps and it's like, yep. okay, right. Yeah. There's, there's a barter system cause it's a video game. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things about that Jameson quote that I've always found like super interesting is that it is like, and I, I think I say this in the book, but like, he starts off that it's a review of this thing called future city, which everyone forgets about. Um, everyone forgets about future city. Sorry to future city. I, I actually don't know much about it either. It's, it's not like super important to the quote, but he starts it off where he says like, someone has said somewhere essentially. Like I recall like someone saying at some point or another that it's harder to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And like, as a result, like no one knows where that quote really comes from. It's almost impossible to track down. Um, you can read the future city review. It's, it's just up on, um, I, I don't know, Marxist.org or something like that. If you Google it, but like mm -hmm. the, the quote itself is like in the ether. Um, and as a result, it has this sort of like um, mythico poetic quality to it, where it's like, you know, someone passed it down, like, uh, you know, the statue of Ozymandias kind of like as a warning from the past. Right. Um, and it's not untrue. And I think one of the reasons it's, it rings so clear is that, capitalism and, and particularly like um, global capitalism has a way of taking any sort of resistance to it and um, bringing it into itself. So, so um, 
you know, one of the things I was thinking about before we came on, um, I know this is not really the point of this podcast, but like, you know, I, I first became aware of you and your writing, uh, when I started getting to sabermetrics and then reading about baseball and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 the Bill James to, uh, people I like to read more than Bill James pipeline. Uh, yes. uh <laughs> but like, yeah, there you go. But the, you know, one of the things I think is true about sabermetrics is like, it really does come from this place of inquiry and interest in the game, right? There's something fascinating about like wondering like, well, what are the underlying truths about the game? Like, what can I figure out about baseball that isn't available from like the, the, the surface? And, and, you know, this is something I I definitely put in the intro to the book where I was talking to a friend of mine and saying like, we were thinking about make, he was like, he was ambitiously trying to imagine like starting this new school and now he does he does it for like you know and 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 security stuff uh cybersecurity stuff for schools um i think he's happier doing that than he would be running a school uh but he was saying that and i was like you know you could find market inefficiencies with teachers and find people who like you know are like really good teachers if you came up with like the ways teaching worked and you could pay them less because like they're not getting hired but like right. you could have them and it's like instantly when i said that it, it became clear like i was like wow that's like it's a crummy way to treat people. And, and like that is, but that's one of the things, right? Like where this amazing sort of set of ideals and ambitions and like trying to understand this amazing game becomes something that is ultimately supportive of a, a very troubling way of treating the people who play the game. Right. Um, and, and, and that's not, that's not accusing you of doing that. That's just saying that that's what the, the discipline did. Right. I, I mean, I've written a million things for, for, you know, the good fight or whatever baseball mm-hmm. prospectus when I wrote there, well, baseball prospectus, I mainly wrote things about marks that made people upset. Shock. Um, people, people really got mad in the comments, but, uh, you know, thanks to Sam Miller for, for being brave enough to get a <laughs> bunch of people mad at him. But, um, yeah, like, I think, I think, you know, this is something that happens in, in games as well. It's something that happens in just like political discourse in general. And so like, there is this ability of capitalism to just like, and and, you know, this isn't even critical. It's just, it's just true of what it is to take what is um, against it in the world, repackage it and sell it back to you. Right. Um, And so in games, I think it's, it it truly is like you look at the economy and you say like, gosh, I wish I could think past like the problems in this world and think about some sort of like larger potentiality or human issue or like truth about humanity. What if we just set this in a world where like we didn't have to worry about having a job or making money or something like that? It's only about survival. Well, that's kind of interesting. Um, but the only games that really get there, it, like closer than something like Fallout are games like, um, you know, this doesn't succeed either, but games like Stalker. I don't know if you've played Stalker. Um it's a first person shooter. It takes place sort of in like a, it's, it's very janky. It's like, it's a post-Soviet or Soviet um, country, uh, Eastern European jank uh, as, as, as you might say. Um, it's an amazing game. All the stalker games are incredible. Uh, they are based on like, you know, essentially a post nuclear apocalyptic world where loosely Russia, I guess, but it is so bleak and so empty. The, <laughs> <laughs> the essential like market is obviously just like people trying to get one over on each other from the beginning, right? That like even engaging with it is sort of like it feels self-defeating. The game is like aggressively hostile to you as as a player. Um and it often turns people off. It's 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 a it's a hard feeling. Same, same with literature, right? Where we start thinking about like, okay, so like how do we imagine the market without the market? Well, you get 
you know, William Gaddis's JR, which is just a bunch of people talking the whole time. It's just like speech flying at you constantly. I read the recognitions. I'm done. I'm good with him. My uh, JR is my favorite novel of all time. Absolutely. Uh, my fave. It is very hard to read, right? Mm-hmm. Like very hard to read. Not a selling point. I know. No, no, it absolutely isn't. And that's like, that's the important thing, right? Where like these games are trying to also be, especially like AAA games are trying to be um, profitable too. Mm -hmm. And so once you say something's not a selling point, someone on the board is going to say like, add in a leveling tree, add in a, a system where they can buy stuff, make it, excuse me, make it so that people can actually like feel like they're getting an investment in in their play and can spend that investment. Right. Um, and I think that's why it's so tough to get beyond like the apocalyptic setting. Cause once you actually start saying like, okay, let's make this so anti-capitalist that like it or counter-capitalist or other than capitalist or whatever, that we're imagining a world where there is no exchange, where there is nothing like that. It becomes, it becomes experimental in a way that I think a lot of games aren't kind of willing to go there right now you have to have a market system otherwise you don't have a a leveling system otherwise you don't have like a game that people recognize as a game um and and it comes back to that kind of like medium question right where like this is something that i that i become kind of fascinated by in the conclusion and you know if if uh things are if i'm if i'm lucky enough to write another book uh i will (laughs) i will probably write it on something like this where like games like um visual novels or um well visual novels let's just stick with that are these fascinating moments of is it a game is it not a game like what is it is it something that you read is it something that you play and they don't care like it's it's a perfectly established genre but fitting it within the genre of video games thinking about it from a medium question medium based question as a game that does not offer like rewards other than completion for you playing through it mm-hmm. um Totally an interesting question as far as that goes. Uh, same with multiplayer games, honestly. Like I get into this a little bit in the first person shooter genre or chapter, but like, you know, all the politics, all the sort of um, hemming and hawing and, 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 and uh, Sturm and Drang about like, oh, this is, you know, violent with, uh, you know, our children shooting up schools because of uh, first person yes. shooters. Uh, is it okay to have a military first person shooter, stuff like that? ultimately gets totally hijacked by the fact that when you play in multiplayer, people are just saying the most, you know, vulgar garbage stuff to you all the time or are doing funny things or are just like, you know, yeah, I, I, uh, a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine told me a story about playing PUBG on voice with like in the, in the Asia server. And, uh, and some American was making fun of, uh, of a Chinese person for not speaking right or, or whatever, like in, in whatever they Yikes. meant by that. Yeah. Not good. And then, the Chinese person uh, killed them, you know, got their character. And then they said, Oh, poor American, you're about to die of COVID. Like, like just like brutally put that guy down on like an open voice channel. Hmm. That has nothing to do right with the politics of PUBG. Like player unknowns battleground doesn't care about that. It has, it's has no politics, right? It's like, it's, it's utterly just a shooter. Um, That moment in there hijacks it completely. And is that a game? Is that a social interaction? So hard to say. And so like questions like that, I think are ultimately at the core of what comes next and thinking about video games where you sort of imagine these spaces that are not quite the single player um, walled gardens that I consider that I consider in this book, but are much more complex and sort of like beyond the scope of the questions I ask here. Um, So like a lot of my favorite academic texts, um, Mm -hmm. I have unfortunately done the thing I hate in them when I get to the end and say like, here's a real question though. What about this stuff? 
<laughs> but ultimately that's kind of what you have to do. So yeah, no, I think I think the question of like what's beyond capitalism, what counts as the end of the world, it sort of counts as a way of rethinking what we know about well, I mean, what we know about video games, what we know about them as a medium and and what actually rethinking that might look like. My guest this week has been Dr. Trevor Strunk. <laughs> whose new book, Story Mode, Video Games and the Interplay Between Consoles and Culture, will be out on November 15th. And you can also follow Trevor on Twitter at Hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. Trevor, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, professional writer Keith Law. (laughs) That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.